Good morning. Um, the, today's passage is from the book of Esther, chapter 3, verse 1 to 15. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman's son of Hamadetta, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gates asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all of Mordecai's peoples, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the Pur, that is, the Lot, was cast in the presence of King Haman to select a day and month, and the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the province of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's law. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadetta the Agite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and alienate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the thirteenth day of the month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Uh, we have reached the next installment in our story of Esther. And if you've been here for the past two weeks, you'll remember that the stage is now set for the story to begin. Uh, we've been introduced to the setting. We know we're taking place in the kingdom of Persia. Uh, this mighty, impressive kingdom uh, where we've met many of the main characters already. Uh, king Xerxes, this great king over the whole empire, and two of God's people, Mordecai 
and Esther, now Queen Esther. Uh, we've got a little glimpse of the challenges they faced living as exiles a long way from home. But in many ways, those first two chapters, really, they form the introduction to the story. And it's in this chapter that the story really begins, uh, because this is where the action begins. Uh, we get confronted with the problem. We're introduced to the villain. You see, here in chapter 3, what we find is that there is an enemy at work. Even as Rebecca read our passage just now, you would have noticed this un. Uh, unmistakable presence of an enemy. Uh, someone who's been given what seems to be unrivaled power. As all you have in this character is someone who sets his posture firmly, squarely against God's people. And then he tries to put into a, a plan to destroy God's people. You see, as we follow the course of this passage, what we find is the rise of the enemy, but then also the demise of God's people. And as we work our way through that, what we will see is that there is an enemy at work. And as we work our way through these verses, we're going to see how this connects uh, with the larger story of the Bible. That is what we're doing each week as we look at the story of Esther. It's not just this isolated, random event that's sort of interesting in and of itself. No, this, this is part of a larger story. It connects with the larger story of the Bible. It connects with our experience, even now as Christian believers. And so even right from the beginning, we can be up front here. What we find in Esther chapter 3 is a sobering word to us. It's a word filled with challenge to you and me today. But it is an important word for us. Because it prepares us for life in a world where there is an enemy at work. And so with that in mind, why don't we jump in and look at the rise of the enemy. Because right from the off, Haman is presented as an enemy against God's people. Verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. As you were introduced to the final main character of the story, Haman. Uh, but we don't really find out all that much about him. We barely know nothing. Basically know nothing about him. But what we do know about him is crucial. Uh, he's introduced to us as the Agagite. Uh, this links him with a man named King Agag, who was the king of the Amalekites. Now, the Amalekites were the historic enemies of God's people. And so what we find here, actually, it takes us all the way back to the Exodus. Uh, Haman, right from the office, linked uh, all the way back to the Exodus. You see, when God rescued his people up out of Egypt... As they were heading away from Egypt, a people named the Amalekites attacked them. Now, when they were weak and vulnerable, the Amalekites came and they tried to destroy God's people. And so God's promised to uphold his people. Uh, Exodus chapter 17, for example. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Now, way back, this conflict would endure uh, we see this picked up again in Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. You see, here was a people who set themselves up against God's people. Uh, they set themselves up against God. And as you trace the story through, you see this hostility, this conflict rage on for centuries. Uh, you see it rear its head again under the time of King Saul. Uh, you follow the action in 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
that the Amalekites and the Israelites once again clash. God's people represented by King Saul. God's enemies represented by King Agag. And what you see in that passage is that King Saul, well, he failed in his calling against King Agag. He failed to defeat the enemy. And so what we have in the book of Esther is Haman tied them to King Agag. He's presented as an enemy of God. He represents this age-old enemy against God's people. And we see this all the more when we remember who Mordecai is. See, last week we said we'd come back to this. Do you remember how Mordecai was introduced? Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish. See, Mordecai is introduced to us. He's introduced to us as one of God's people. But more than that, he's introduced to us as being linked to King Saul. See, Mordecai's tribe was the tribe of Benjamin. That was King Saul's tribe. In his ancestry, he has this man named Kish. Well, that was the name of King Saul's father. In other words, right from the beginning here, Mordecai is presented as a descendant of King Saul, whereas Haman is presented as a descendant of King Agag. And so right from the off, this age-old conflict rears its head. Haman is presented as an enemy of God's people. And what we find here is that this enemy is promoted to a position of power. He's elevated. He's given a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. He is the second in command. And we saw how powerful this kingdom was, how powerful King Xerxes was. Well, here we have an enemy of God's people elevated to second in command. And we see him promoted instead of Mordecai. And I was not mentioned explicitly here, but remember what happened just before. In fact, verse 1, after these events, this is what happened. Well, what events? What happened last week? Do you remember how we finished? that Mordecai stumbled across a plot to assassinate the king. Uh, He comes across this assassination plot. He tells Queen Esther. Queen Esther tells King Xerxes. And so what we find is that Mordecai saves the king's life. And yet what did he receive for all his efforts? He received nothing. He should have been honored as a loyal servant to the king. But what we find here is that where Mordecai received no honor, Haman, the enemy of God's people, is given honor above all else. See, he's presented as an enemy. In other words, the tone as we open up this chapter, it's ominous. If you're watching a movie, the music would change at this point. Uh, Maybe the colors would change, the temperature, some kind of movie thing would happen. And you would kind of know that something's about to happen. Well, that's what we find here. Haman is presented as an enemy of God's people. Mordecai recognizes this. Verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. As the king elevates Haman to this great position, he promises him respect. He commands everyone to pay him honor. And everyone complies except for our friend Mordecai. Now, why doesn't Mordecai bow down? You see, there wasn't actually any problem with him doing that. This wouldn't, be, wouldn't have been an act of worship. This would have just been a sign of respect, one of those customs. Uh, you can be pretty sure that hey, uh, Mordecai would have bowed down to the king uh, as a loyal servant to the king. So there's nothing objectionable about what he refuses to do. So, so why won't he do it? 
Well, we get a little glimpse in the verses that follow. Verse 3, the royal officials at the king's gate, they asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Uh, Verse 4, day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For he had told them he was a Jew. Uh, His friends at the civil service, they keep pestering Mordecai. What are you doing? Why won't you bow down to him? Why won't you show him respect? And Mordecai persists. It seems like he won't tell them, but eventually he lets them. Eventually he reveals his identity as a Jew. The only hints we get in this passage are Haman's identity as the Agagite. Mordecai's identity as a Jew. Mordecai from the line of King Saul. Haman from the line of King Agag. And this isn't just because Mordecai was too proud to show other people respect. No, showing respect to Haman, the enemy of God's people. Well, that was just a step too far. Uh, This is how one writer explains it. It is clearly understood that the point at issue is not a personal antipathy, but a conflict between the Jew and the Yagagite. It is this ancient and enduring hostility that has surfaced again. And so we see Haman presented as an enemy of God, and, and he, he, he plays this out. As the verses continue, we see how Haman, he sets himself up, not just against Mordecai, but against all of Mordecai's people. Verse 5, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman sounds a little bit like the king, doesn't he? Back in chapter 1. He doesn't quite get his way. Someone refuses him and he explodes. He's filled with fury. In fact, it seems as if he didn't even know that Mordecai didn't bow down to him. But now that he's told, well, then he blows up. And we get a little insight into the depth of hostility that's there. See? Killing Mordecai, well, that already would be an overreaction, but even that isn't enough for him. It goes deeper. He sees where Mordecai belongs, who he belongs to. And the spotlight here is on Mordecai's people, God's people. This is the people that God had chosen. This is the people that God had promised himself to. And yet Haman sets himself up against them. In other words, this isn't just an ethnic dimension here. There is a spiritual dimension here. It's a religious thing. What Haman is doing in setting himself up against God's people, he is setting himself up against God himself. And so he tries to deliver God's people over to the hands of fate. Verse 7. The twelfth, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, the first month, the month of Nisan, the pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day in a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. The, 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 the purr, this lot, it, it basically is like dice. And so they were rolling the dice to try to pick a day, the lucky day, and the auspicious day to be the day of destruction for God's people. And as they do that, it's as if you can picture the enemy holding these dice in their hand. And as they do that, it's as if they hold God's people in their hands. God's people's fate look like it's in the hands of the enemy. 
See, what we find here is that there is an enemy at work against God's people. And we got little um, hints of this last week uh, in chapter 2. A little hints that there was a pressure to keep your head down, a pressure to conform, to blend in. Well, here it gets brought to light. You see, the challenges that God's people faced in this circumstance, they weren't just a matter of circumstances. It wasn't just a problem with their circumstances in general. No, here is someone who has set his posture against God's people. There is the unmistakable presence of an enemy here within the story of Esther. And the presence of an enemy, of course, extends beyond the story of Esther. And we saw already this hostility that Haman represents. It's an age-old hostility, an age-old enemy. What we have in this book isn't just an isolated event, such as a, a random occurrence where someone didn't like God's people. It's part of a larger story. It's the manifestation of a larger story. This is how one of my former professors summarizes this. Haman's enmity towards God's people was merely the latest manifestation of Satan's ongoing warfare against the people of God. The struggle for the hearts and minds of mankind that began in the garden continues on throughout time and space. And those who belong to the people of God will frequently feel the assaults of the evil one. In other words, throughout Scripture, you see this spiritual battle raging on. We see it rear its head here in the book of Esther in this episode. We see it throughout the rest of Scripture as well. And you see it in the life and ministry of Jesus. Even at his birth, he was under threat of being wiped out by King Herod. At the start of his ministry, Satan himself tried to tempt Jesus away from obedience to the Father. And of course, all the way through his life and ministry, the religious leaders, they were determined to get rid of Jesus. We see it in the life of Jesus, and of course, we'll see it in the life of those who follow Jesus. It's what Jesus himself promised. John chapter 15, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me... They will persecute you also. You continue on in the rest of the New Testament. Uh, The enemy is described as a roaring lion, prowling around looking for someone to devour. He's portrayed as one who's raising up powers that stand opposed to God's people, determined to push them, pull them away from trusting Jesus. In other words, what we have here, it's not just that there is an enemy at work here in Esther. Friends, there is an enemy at work now. Now what we're doing here, it isn't just sort of looking at this episode and seeing some vague similarities with our circumstance and then sort of making a jump. No, friends, the opposition that we encounter, the conflict that we find ourselves in, it's of the very same conflict that we find here in Esther. There is an enemy at work now. And I wonder, have you reckoned with that? Have you reckoned with that reality? See, the challenges that we face as Christian believers, they're not just material. They're not just a problem of our circumstances. That there is a spiritual dimension to it. And of course, when we see that, it changes the way we look at the world. It changes the way we consider our circumstances. It changes the way we pray. Now, of course, it would be much more comfortable to just skip past this link. 
uh, kind of it's easier to just look at this within the story of Esther, a little fairy tale contained here. Uh, it would be a lot easier to keep this at arm's length or to kind of keep it in a box. It's much safer to just reduce our challenges to the material. It's just a, a problem of economics, just a, a problem of politics. Friends, don't get lulled into that. It's vital that we reckon with the reality of this because the Bible is clear. This passage shines a light on what it really is like to live in this world. It exposes the spiritual reality of our circumstances. It shows us that there is an enemy at work. We see that here in the rise of the enemy in chapter 3. We also see it in the demise of God's people as the rest of the chapter unfolds. You see, as Haman stands with this posture against God's people, he tries to implement a plan to destroy God's people. And so God's people are given into the hands of the enemy. Verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people. And they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. Now, not for the first time we see the king is manipulated. Now, Haman manipulates the king against God's people. He starts with this truth. And there's a certain people dispersed among the peoples in your kingdom. You know, that, fine, that, that's true, Haman. But he states it so vaguely there's almost no substance here. Which people? What are these people like? It's so vague. And then he, he takes that and then twists it into the half-truth. Uh, these people, they keep themselves separate. Their customs are different. Again, that's true. The Jews were a distinct group. Uh, God's people were distinctive. And yet you see what he's implying, right? It's not just a statement of fact. No, he's implying that this is bad news. Oh, this isn't good that they're different. Something, something's up here. Oh, this is, this is dangerous. And then, of course, it develops into a full-blown lie. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the best king's best interest to tolerate them. I mean, everything we've seen so far, the, God's people here, they're very law, much law-abiding citizens. Uh, Esther complied with everything. Mordecai looks like a model citizen. He saved the king's life. How could it not be in the king's best interest to tolerate them? And yet you see what Haman is doing. Oh, there is a people, King Xerxes, that are dangerous. They're, they're too different. It's best not to tolerate them. They're bad for society. He manipulates the king against God's people. And of course, he puts a cherry on top, a financial incentive. Verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Now, I've never been in business before, but I imagine that most business proposals don't go through this quickly. But of course, he promises this insane sum. This would be almost over half the annual tax revenue. He knows his audience. It's not clear how he'd actually be able to pay this, but he knows his audience. He manipulates the king against God's people. And in the end, God's people are placed in the hands of the enemy. Verse 10, the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. The king doesn't even look into the issue. 
He doesn't even ask for any spreadsheets or data. He doesn't check the facts. He just says, go for it. He signs off on this without even looking into the details. He doesn't even learn who these people are. And so he hands over the signal ring, the, the, the representation of his authority. And he tells Haman to do as he pleases. Literally, it reads, to do with the people what is good in your eyes. And of course, there's a terrible irony here. Because what is good in Haman's eyes is utterly evil. And so it's right that he has this chilling designation. He is the enemy of the Jews. He's the enemy of God's people. And under his plan, God's people are faced with destruction. Uh, look at all the authoritative language of verse 12. Uh, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote in the script and language of all the different people. Uh, this decree is given to all those in charge. <clears throat> uh, they're written in the name of King Xerxes himself, sealed with his own ring. Uh, Haman's devious plan, it's given the royal stamp of authority. It's taken up into the processes of the administration. There's a finality here. Uh, Haman's plan is signed, sealed, and delivered. And the scope of this is comprehensive. Verse 13, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued uh, as law in every province, made known to the people of every nationality, so that they would be ready. This word goes out to everyone, to the furthest reaches of the kingdom. This triple header to destroy, kill, and annihilate just underlines the severity of this plan. Even the scope of those who fall under it is spelled out in explicit detail. Even the young and the old, even the women and children would fall under this plan. You see, by this stage in their history, God's people had just about survived exile. They had just about clung on. God had preserved a remnant. But would this be the end? You know, what about God's promises to his people? Just think about the timing of when this decree goes out. Verse 12, it's on the 13th day of the first month. Well, that would be the eve of Passover. A time of great celebration for God's people. As they remember how God rescued him out of Egypt. Up out of slavery with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That was when God demonstrated that he was the one true living God. All the enemies would recognize that. It's where he redeemed the people for himself. He purchased the people for himself. That he would dwell with them. That they would be his people. And yet instead of this celebration, they are left with terror. Would God, through, would God come through for his people again? Because when we, when we leave this passage, where we end, it looks like they're utterly powerless. Verse 15, the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Uh, the order goes out with, with haste, with speed. There's an urgency here. Uh, you can't stop it now. It, it's too late. It's a done deal. It seems like it's in the bag for the enemy. So much so that Haman can sit down after a good day's work and celebrate with a drink. Well, God's people look like they are on the wrong side of history. They are faced with utter destruction. You see, there is an enemy at work here 
who stands squarely opposed to God's people, who issues a plan to destroy God's people. That's what we see here in Esther. It's what we see throughout Scripture. It's what we see throughout history. You see, if there is an enemy at work, then this is what God's people are to expect. It's what Christian believers are to expect. Uh, That quote from my professor earlier, this is how he continues. Our expectation of life ought to be of a constant spiritual battle in which spiritual adversaries are constantly ranged against us, against whom we need to be on our guard, protected by the whole armor of God. Think of it this way, in our world and in our society, it's not just that Christianity is unbelievable. No, it is undesirable. It's not just that it's not true, it's that it's bad. Following Jesus will ruin your job prospects, your security in the future. Following Jesus will do damage to your identity as an individual. Following Jesus will be a surefire way to disrupt the order of society and to disrupt the order of your family. And so to take Haman's words, it's as if the world says, it is not in the world's best interests to tolerate Christian believers. Now, of course, this takes a whole range of different forms. Subtle forms, low-key forms. I think back to my experience at high school, and I don't think I quite clocked it then, but as I look back, there were a surprisingly large number of teachers who really hated Christian things. Uh, There was one teacher in particular I remember. I think it was a Thursday morning each week we had him, first first session. And he would be filled with rage because of chapel that happened just before. I mean, he would be red in the face angry about Christianity. Uh, Other teachers would be much more calm and serene. One teacher, he he would just say, as a matter of fact, but we know that you can't take the Bible literally and just sort of move on. Another teacher, if I remember, well, but we know that the Bible is misogynistic and then just moves on. Friends, I wonder if you've ever heard comments like that at school or at university uh, from your colleagues, maybe from parts of your family even. And we've experienced this in all sorts of subtle forms, but of course there's the big and blatant forms as well, uh, like what we see here in Esther, like what we see in the early church the earliest Christians in the Roman Empire, what they experienced. Of course, this is what our brothers and sisters around the world experience right now. I remember being humbled while at seminary. In our prayer group, we had a couple of students uh, from a particular nation in Africa. And the stories they shared of the challenges that their families faced just to gather with God's people. I mean, it was sobering. There is an enemy at work. And we ought to keep these brothers and sisters in our thoughts. And we should pray for our persecuted brothers and sisters. And we should keep this in mind for ourselves as well. Uh, We said at the beginning, this story here, it's not just an isolated event. uh, Something that's interesting to read about that has nothing to do with us. No, this word here, it's a sobering word to us. It's an important word for us. It's something we need to take seriously. Think of it this way, following Jesus is not just a nice extra that you add into your life to make your life work a little bit better. It's not like a nice hobby that you just sort of invest a bit of time in uh, when you have the occasion. 
It's not even just a, a set of practices that you take on in your life as a way to approach life. No, it's more fundamental than that. It is aligning yourself with Jesus Christ. And when you do that, Esther 3, the Bible shows us that you will put yourself in the path of opposition. There's no promise of a nice, easy, smooth life. Of course, there'll be many people who try to sell you a version of Christianity like that. But it's not true. That's not what we see here in our passage. It's not what we see in the rest of Scripture. In fact, to promise that only serves to set people up for disappointment. Following Christ will set you in the path of opposition because there is an enemy at work. It's something we need to take seriously. But then we can also take heart in the midst of that. Because friends, this is something you can also know. Following Jesus will not put you on the wrong side of history. Not ultimately. Because the enemy is not in control. Now in the story of Esther, we'll see that begin to unfold next week. Come back next week. We'll see the resolution to this problem begin to unfold. But even in our passage here today, we get a little glimpse, a little hint, a little signal that the enemy is not in control. You see, the date that was chosen for destruction, you remember how that was chosen? Uh, by lot, by the roll of the dice. It seemed like it was left up to fate. But of course, we know that it wasn't. And not just in an abstract way, but friends, take to heart Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Every decision. Every single decision. Even this decision, this choice of this date, this turn of events is ordained by God himself. It's not out of his hands. This is the theme that we see throughout all of Esther, the silent sovereignty of God. I work through all things, all circumstances, according to his purpose. See, it looked like God's people were in the hands of the enemy. But friends, make no mistake, God's people were safe in God's own hands. And no one, no matter how ferocious the enemy is, no one can snatch them out of his hands. See, the enemy is at work, but he's not in control. Again, we'll see this begin to unfold. We see how this plays out in the story of Esther from next week. But we already know how it plays out on the, on the big stage. And we already know how it played out supremely through the death of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus too, in the language of Esther chapter 3, he was accused falsely with lies and half-truths. He was challenged by enemies. He was sold for pieces of silver. He was condemned to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. He was handed over into the hands of his enemies. And yet everything that happened to him, every single thing that happened to him, was precisely as he had predicted. Precisely as he had planned. This would be precisely the way in which he would rescue his people out of slavery to sin. This would be the way that God would demonstrate to the powers of the world that he was in control. That he was victorious 
of the powers of darkness. It would be the way that he would purchase a people for himself that he would cherish and hold on to forever. And friends, when Jesus returns, everyone, everyone will recognize this. And what that means is that no matter how many people ridicule you for your faith, and no matter how fierce your position becomes, no matter how small you feel, no matter how in control the enemy looks, you can know that following Jesus will not put you on the wrong side of history, not ultimately. And so as we finish, friends, let me urge you, will you take this seriously? There is an enemy at work, even now. But will you also take heart? Because the enemy is not in control. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that in your word, uh, you do not uh, veil from us uh, the reality of what we're to expect. Uh, thank you that you show us even hard things, challenging things, uh, sobering things. Uh, thank you that in your kindness, uh, you show us that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle. But we thank you and praise you that even in the midst of that, and even when the enemy looks so powerful, we know that he is not in control because you are in control. And that if we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we are safe and secure forever. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to take heart in him today. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.